1: and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Pierce, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Today, we're talking about apologetics and doctrine for women. It's, you know, women are more than just a pretty face. Usually, if you watch a movie, well, it's for the women, especially in an action movie, usually a main role seems to be Being romantic with a hero and screaming and being rescued. And that seems to be about it. And sadly in the church, we can have the same kind of thing, Pat. If women get together for a conference, it's all about, here's how you can be a better wife. Here's how you can be a better mother. Which is fine and good. Those things should be happening. But maybe sometimes women need more. Maybe we could actually teach women doctrine on their own you want to do this i brought on felicia masonheim our author of the book stop calling me beautiful finding so deep strength in the skin deep world she teaches christian women how to know if they believe and live it boldly she's a blogger podcast host and speaker her writing focuses on discerning truth in the culture of confusion and letting that truth draw us nearer to god she lives in northern michigan for her husband and children so felicia welcome to the show
0: thank you for having me nick
1: now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing?
0: Yes. So I originally took an interest in theology and apologetics back when I was in college. I attended Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, and didn't originally mean to major in anything related to the Bible. I was actually working in higher education at the time. And so I wasn't interested in making a career out of ministry or doing, you know, writing related to theology or apologetics. But the way things turned out, I ended up changing my major. The fastest degree I could get was religion. It was also the most demanding program at the time. And so I ended up in that program and really enjoyed it. So after that, I began just writing for fun on different topics that interested me related to the Bible, hermeneutics, um, theology, just working out how does what we believe about God affect our daily decisions. And over the course of around, I'd say probably seven years, I built a small audience that followed along with what I was writing and gradually grew to what I do today. So um, now I have two self-published books and a traditionally published book, which is Stop Calling Me Beautiful, a podcast and my website where we talk about pretty much how theology affects all the areas of your life as a woman.
1: Now, I'm kind of curious since you went to Liberty and you said that changed. Did Gary Habermas have anything to do with it?
0: Well, I did not have the privilege of having Gary as one of my professors, but he was for sure there while I was on campus, and mm-hmm. I did get to hear him lecture a few times. I do love him. He's wonderful.
1: Yeah, he's uh, very important of him. He's actually the man who introduced me to my wife and, in turn, the guy who married us, so we owe him a debt.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So let's uh,
1: start getting a the book. Now, let's clear things up. The book is called Stop Calling Me Beautiful, so... Now, are you saying I should stop going, my wife, and telling her she's beautiful, then? That's, That's not what you're saying now, is it?
0: Right. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that we should never tell our husbands, our wives, that they're attractive to us. The point is that our women's ministries at large are teaching women that all that the Christian faith is really about is treating surface issues, making us feel better about ourselves, talking about how beautiful we are in God's eyes, how we're daughters of the King. And those things may be true, but they're not the whole story. We need the whole story. How did we become beautiful daughters of God? Who were we before? What did God do to make that possible, to make that happen? And without the full story, we actually end up cheapening the grace of God. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I I notice I get emails about Kindle books, discounts, and when it comes to books for women, it's usually things like, you know, how to handle your emotional problems, being a good mother, or being a good wife. And there's a place for that, and you can find parallel books for men, but very rarely do I find apologetics books and theology books geared towards women, but the only exception I can think of right off is Hillary Ferrero's work with a mama bear apologetics that's mm-hmm. been on my show before but other than that for women it, it's just all about you know treating women like they're pretty much purely emotional beings where except for maybe when it comes to the bedroom and then we are physical beings but other than that no
0: right right yeah absolutely most of the material that's being marketed um unconsciously does treat women as you know they're relational they're emotional but they're not intellectual they're not interested Mm. in being intellectual or theological which is truly hilarious because you know with all of the progress the world has made or you know depends who you're talking to but even among feminist christians um In that camp, they would say we've made all this progress, you know, to allow women to have a voice and to interact in all of these spheres. And yet the material that's being put out still only addresses this certain portion of a woman's nature, the emotional The physical, like you said, the bedroom type um, conversations, and it's not addressing the intellectual aspect of who she is and her desire and need to go deeper theologically.
1: You know, there's kind of an irony with this, too, because my thinking is if women did go deeper theologically, we probably wouldn't need as much of the other stuff as we've already
0: got. Yes, that's such a good point because, and that's the whole thing, when you understand God rightly, it changes how you live, Mm -hmm. right? Doctrine leads to devotion. So Mm -hmm. if you're theologically strong or you're understanding God through scripture on your own, you know how to study the Bible, you know where to get the answers, then you're not going to be so pushed around by, as Paul said, every wind of doctrine. Um, you know, being unsure and unstable in all your ways because you know where to go to get those answers to stand on the solid rock.
1: Yeah. Now, if a woman wants to do this, does she have to be like some super nerdy intellectual genius IQ or something like that? can't can the average lay woman really understand theology and or apologetics?
0: Absolutely. She can, she doesn't need a Bible degree. She doesn't need to go to seminary. And I honestly, I didn't attend seminary. I have an undergraduate degree and, and, everything else that i've learned and everything i do has been on my own study time now obviously it's my work and so the average woman probably won't spend as much time on it as i do but she can still learn so much just with a few tools like learning how to do inductive bible study to actually read a passage of scripture on her own instead of with a devotional or having someone else tell her what it means in a christian lifestyle book you know, learning how to use a commentary or how to analyze different theological perspectives. You know, there are so many different approaches to certain issues in Christianity that it's good to read across different traditions. How how can she filter through that? Just a few of those tools can help her to navigate these kinds of things, even if she is at home with small kids reading this during lunch, you know. It doesn't have to be a career thing. It can simply be in the corners of the day where she's drawing closer to God by understanding him more.
1: Okay, so give us an example here of some of these two Like you said, inductive Bible study. What can a woman do here? I mean, I think most of us, we usually just think, you know, pick up the Bible and read it. Boom, I've done my Bible study for the day.
0: Yeah. So inductive Bible study is an approach to studying the Bible that involves breaking down the text as you're reading it to discover the author's intent, the themes, the word meanings, the historical context, all of these things that help you understand what the Bible actually meant. And I'm sure, Nick, you've heard people say, just as I have, you know, Leviticus is boring or there's Old Mm. Testament's hard to understand. Well, it is because it was written in a different culture and time. If you sat down to the Iliad with no help, yeah, it would be confusing and hard to understand at times. But the Bible is also an ancient literary text originally written in a different language. It's just also the inspired Word of God. And so we have to understand when we come to it that it will take work. It will require that we struggle a little bit to understand it, but there's so many great tools out there to help with that now. So Kay Arthur is a good example with Precept Ministries. She teaches and has tons of books on how to break the Bible down, how to understand what you're reading using commentaries it was a commentary that originally made me fall in love with Leviticus because I finally understood the meaning behind the sacrifices and more context of what was going on there it's just the fact that we bring a western mind to the text that makes it so difficult
1: yeah Um, I I always get in this when I'm dialoguing with interestingly enough atheists you usually mm. you go and treat the Bible as if it was written today and everything has to be crystal clear today and by God, you shouldn't need to go and really study the context and the culture or anything like that.
0: Mm.
1: Sadly to me, Christians have the exact same mindset. They, they, they kind of think like the, the Bible isn't for them, it's written to them. It's God's personal message to them and they should understand it immediately as they are.
0: Mm, I love that point, which is so interesting because you wouldn't bring that attitude to any other kind of literature. Mm -hmm. If you were in an English 101 class, they would tell you, you know, let's think about when this was written, who the author was, what their intent was, who the audience, the original audience probably was. That would all color what you're reading. You know, you think about a play like Death of a Salesman super popular everybody knows about it well it was written in a certain time and when you understand what was going on at that time it helps you understand what's going on in the play it's the same kind of thing with the bible only it's inspired and errant infallible and when we remove that you know it's just like you said we think the bible's written to us and we're like well i should just understand it it should just come naturally we're forgetting that it's still a work of literature
1: you know, Mark No wrote an interesting book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And in it he has a line that the reason slavery lasted so long here in America was because the arguments that the abolitionists had, they were the stronger arguments. They were more nuanced, required an understanding of a culture and the context and the history. And most Americans instead had this view that, you know, the Bible should be crystal clear and we're a chosen people so it should speak directly to us and so because of that mindset the abolitionists weren't winning the argument which led to the civil war so yeah that kind of mindset has consequences
0: wow that's a fascinating um historical way of looking at that and yeah so many implications today when you look at that kind of mentality and how it affects reading the bible it's It leads to, it can't help but lead to a salvation, and I say that with quotations, Mm. um, a salvation that is truly exhausting and works based because your relationship with God is completely dependent on you immediately applying whatever you're reading. And there's not a lot of understanding of how the Holy Spirit works and sanctification and walking with God personally. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, I, I'm going to read only the stuff in the Bible that applies to me, and mm-hmm. I'm going to try my best to live it out.
1: Okay, so how exactly did you get interested in this?
0: I got interested in it all because of my own personal struggle with these things. Mm-hmm. I was struggling with what the Christian life was supposed to look like, Um, Like many people, I grew up without a great understanding of the Holy Spirit or his role. Um, I was raised in a Pentecostal environment where the Holy Spirit really was more an emotional experience than he was a person of the Trinity who was sanctifying you. And then when we left that environment, I ended up, you know, at a Southern Baptist university where we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit at all. Now, of course, that's not the case for every Southern Baptist experience, but where I was, the church I was in, um, that was the case. And so it was like these two ends of a, a spectrum. And I was trying to understand what does it mean to follow Christ? Is it I accept Christ and then it's all up to me? Or is there something else here that I'm missing? And as I really dug into the word for myself and started to learn how to study it, I realized that it's, it's, you know, a both and the Lord grace, faith and grace are bringing me this salvation. But after that I walk in obedience and he sanctifies me as I walk and the, the hard work of Christianity, the exhausting nature of it went away. The more I understood that, as long as I stay in, in Christ, I abide in the vine, he will work this in me, this character in me. He will change me. It was so freeing to understand that John 15 concept that I thought, you know, other women need to understand this. You know, we've been told just be a beautiful daughter of the king and it'll make you feel better and, mm. and you'll do all the right things. And it wasn't working for me. And then I realized, well, Scripture doesn't expect it to work for you. It's not what it what the Bible teaches.
1: Because, you know, the number one goal in life is to feel good about yourself, right?
0: Right. According mm-hmm. to cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you've got a chapter in here about the Instagram Bible. I think that's an interesting way to put it because, you know, social media is such a huge part of our lives. My wife loves for Instagram. She's got a dream of being a makeup artist someday. So mm. she's p- posting pictures of herself on Instagram, trying to get people's reactions for her, think about how she's doing her makeup. Now, do you, when you talk about the Instagram Bible, what exactly do you have in mind there?
0: When I describe the Instagram Bible, I'm talking about the way we treat the Bible as something postable to social media. So we don't want to spend time in Scripture unless it's the perfect Instagrammable environment. Mm -hmm. A candle, coffee, an armchair, you know, a Bible spread out on our lap. And the funny thing is, on my own Instagram, I have pictures of this. However, that's not always what it looks like. Mm -hmm. A lot of times... I'm studying the Bible with my two small children right there because I didn't get up early enough to study it in the morning. Or back when I was working full time, I did it on my lunch break in my car or in my office at my desk. What mattered was that I I came to the Lord and I sought him. It wasn't where I was or what time it was. You know, it's not like we fail if it's not at 6 a.m., but we've created this expectation that a quiet time with God has to look a certain way to be valid or to approach him. And that's the Instagram Bible. And when we let go of that and we realize until what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, did people have this perfect environment to seek God? Of course not. The apostles didn't have it. The disciples didn't have that. They sought God for God's sake, not for what they could get out of him. And that is a huge mentality shift for Christian women.
1: Yeah, the term quiet time nowhere shows up in scripture. I've been a Christian for several years. I'd never heard anyone make that kind of reference. And really, it makes no sense. I do my Bible reading. In the morning, first thing I wake up, I read a chapter of the New Testament, chapter of the Old Testament. Sometimes my wife be right next to me playing YouTube videos or something like that. I still have to keep going. and uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're not always going to find perfect conditions. I mean, usually at night i read like just a simple verse and think about that as I'm going to sleep. But yeah, you're not going to find perfect conditions. I mean, if you can get them, great. But I wouldn't bet, no.
0: Yeah. If you wait for the perfect time, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: And I like the whole thing about how, you know, we think things have to be able to be shared in an instagram post i shared something like this recently and someone said they are felt out of people are posting things like bible verses online with no context to them whatsoever i mean sometimes that can work with some verses but not all of them i mean how many of us have misunderstood so thoroughly philippians 4:13 or jeremiah <laughs> 29:11? oh gosh don't i don't know how many testimonies i've heard quoting jeremiah twenty i'm thinking i know when did you go into the babylonian exile please tell me this
0: <laughs> and how does this promise apply yeah,
1: on this thread i i share this picture of this devotional calendar i have the, the verse from luke said all this i will give to you if you will bow down and worship me it sounds so <laughs> inspirational Until you realize it was the devil who said that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so classic. Another one that I see a lot for women is the verse from Psalms. I think it's Psalm 42, maybe 46, where it says, for God is within her, she she will not fall. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about the city of Jerusalem. It's not talking about a woman. Mm -hmm. but because the the language the pronoun is female we take it out of context and we put it on shirts and mugs and anything else we can Mm -hmm. even though it does not apply in that context
1: yeah and you know i I really wish people would just give just a little bit of context sometimes to all these verses just try to understand me every time i'm and even I hear a testimony of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I wish I could just come up here and say, "Let me tell you what's really going on." I mean, I, I understand how you want do that. Just look, there's a better verse you can go to. Just go to something like Romans eight twenty eight or something like that. That'll work just fine for you,
0: right? Mm-hmm. And when you give the context, it makes the concept so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. I also think it's funny in that Jeremiah 29 passage that everybody wants 29, 11, but nobody wants twenty nine twelve. Mm-hmm. you know, where it says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, if, if it's conditional, you know, but you know, we want to just hear, God has great plans for me, but no requirements. Mm-hmm. And yet God expects us to walk with him and obey in order to see the fullness of his blessing and we ignore that part mm-hmm.
1: yeah and now let's move on to another part here with, with this you've also got a tale of two women and i thought this was such an interesting contrast i'd never compare these two the samaritan woman to which my wife is interested in joining the eastern orthodox church and tomorrow is the sunday of a samaritan woman I think oh, interesting. She said. and dinah in the old testament now most people know about the The Samaritan woman, a lot of people might not know the story of Dinah. She's not the most famous woman in the Old Testament. So what what's her story?
0: Well, it's actually really sad. Mm -hmm. Um, Dinah was a daughter of Jacob. She's the only named daughter of Jacob that we know. So we know he had his uh twelve sons and by different wives, and then he had Dinah by Leah. So she's Mm -hmm. Leah's daughter. And at the time when the story takes place in Genesis 34, Dinah and her family are all camping near the city of Shechem, mm-hmm. which is named for the prince Shechem. Mm-hmm. His name is Shechem and the city's named after him and his father. Um, I think his father's Hay- Haymor. So mm-hmm. they're sitting here, you know, camping nearby. They build a well, Jacob's well there. Um, and Dinah goes out to see the women. Of the land. And at some point during. Which is perfectly that, normal behavior for her. W- right, would be perfectly normal. Yes, they were not Israelites, but she was seeing other women in the area. And during that time, Shechem takes her, um, rapes her. Essentially, the reason we know it would be rape is because she could not have done anything to prevent this. She couldn't have consented to be taken into his house and sexually taken by him. And so he takes her, sleeps with her. He keeps her in his house. After that, he then goes to his father and says, hey, I want, I want this woman as a, as a wife. And the real thing we need to look at here, and this goes back to historical context, is this was super offensive to Dinah. And as our Western minds, we Mm. think, oh my gosh, this is horrible. This woman is being hurt. That's true. But it was also in this culture and time extremely offensive to her family, a complete dishonor to Jacob Mm. and his family, Um, a shame on them. And so what happens is Jacob finds out what happens to Dinah And he doesn't do anything. He's completely silent. And so the brothers, her brothers get angry and they go into the city and they tell everyone in the city that they need to be circumcised. All the men need to be circumcised if they want to marry, if Shechem wants to marry Dinah. And so they say, hey, sure, we'll do it. And on the third day after their surgery, Simeon and Levi go in and kill all the males in the city as vengeance for what happened to their sister. And because then they take the Diana males back. are
1: incapable of fighting at that time. Right, right.
0: They're still in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, and then it ends. We don't hear, we don't hear anything except the end of the chapter. Jacob's angry at Simeon and Levi for killing all the men because he's worried that they're going to come and, you know, go to war against him, the surrounding people, not one bit of Jacob seems to be concerned about his daughter or what happened to her, only about himself. And then the chapter ends. And so the story is quite sad, truly. Like all we know about Dinah is this story of her sexual assault. And when we move forward, I was studying the Samaritan woman for an event, and this is how I found Dinah's story. And the parallel we move forward thousands of years to when Jesus arrives and comes to Samaria to meet the Samaritan woman, where he met her at that well was the same place where this happened to Dinah, Jacob's well outside Shechem. And yet in the Samaritan's woman, her interaction with Jesus, we see the redemption of a woman who's had the a similar past of sexual shame and rejection and neglect. Um, She was likely five times divorced um, and women did not have the right to divorce at that time. So she probably was either infertile, possibly she committed adultery, but five times, it really indicates she was undesirable to the men who were marrying her. Mm -hmm. And so we have two women, same place, thousands of years apart, who both have similar pasts and jesus enters in and he is the redeemer and the the changing point for their story and it's so neat to see how when we allow jesus to be that that point of transformation and make it truly about him our lives get transformed as well
1: yeah let's uh start a bit more with dinah here i liked how you said that this would have been a dishonoring thing because One thing I tell people is, look, if you want to understand the Bible, you have got to understand honor and shame Mm. in the ancient world. You will not understand the Bible properly unless you understand those. And that's central story because rape its not just about the pain that the woman went through, which is what we think of in our individual context. It's about the shame and dishonor to which that still exists today. A woman raped Fears used like she's an object we sometimes use the term that they think they're damaged goods yeah. in a sense that still goes on and probably i was wondering what is it with fathers in the bible sadly in the old testament when their daughters get raped because when uh, tomorrow gets raped by her half brother and then king david her dad and his dad actually it says king david was furious Mm-hmm. And yet he did absolutely nothing. It was Absalom, another son of his who ended up curing Amnon later on for this. And, yeah, but I mean rape it it it's back in that context, it wouldn't have been the physical pain that would have been most prevalent in their minds. It would have been for shame that they would have yes. gone through
0: yeah, yeah. and and that's an example of something that you wouldn't know at a surface level reading you know you just read it and and you take your western mind and you go this is terrible and it is horrible for the woman but there's the reactions of the characters make more sense when you understand that cultural context
1: mm-hmm. and so then the, do the reactions make sense because if they do absolutely nothing. I mean, you might say, okay, maybe the brothers went over the top curing everyone in the town instead of just curing Shechem. But but uh, if they didn't do anything, what they're saying is, you know, you can treat our sister or you however you want to, and we're cool with that. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's the same... We have that same kind of thing going on today. I mean, I've made it clear on my Facebook and me you other know, place that, look, you want to come... Come at me as an apologist, insert me, attack me that way all you want. Go ahead, be my guest, bring it on, I'm ready. But if you dare go after my wife on Facebook, God have mercy on you because I'm sure not going to do it at all. I, mean, I think the rule on Facebook for us is if you go on Facebook and you insert Nick's wife, everyone else sit back and pop some popcorn because we are going to enjoy the show so much
0: (laughs) no there really is still that the honor and shame Mm -hmm. um, way of not just in like western relationships like marriage because yes you know it's like this blood is thicker than water the family relationships and the defense that we have for those who are our own but if you even go um, outside of Westernized culture. So Mm. you go back to the Middle East today, honor and shame is still such a driving factor. And so many people just read the Bible with their own cultural context, which I get it. It's hard to think outside your context, but to understand the incredible parallel of what, what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman, we have to understand what happened with Dinah. And I think, you know, when we look at the authors who are writing down these narratives, in scripture we have to remember that they were well-educated in scripture they knew the all these accounts so when they're writing another account there's no doubt in my mind that they often remembered previous things that took place at these locations just like I went to Boston recently and I love John Adams I think he's just the coolest mm-hmm. person in history I love to study and read about him so when I went back to Boston even though I had my own, you know, cultural context and things that I was doing there, I remembered what happened there hundreds of years before because I know the stories. It matters to me. Mm-hmm. And so when we're reading the Bible, I think it's really neat to remember that the author would know, hey, this account that I'm writing with Jesus, John, was writing this, Jesus and the Samaritan woman they knew what happened at Jacob's Well and the history of that area. And so that would be something that we should also keep in mind when reading.
1: Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here. And I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions. And over the years, I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions. And I highly recommend his program. Yeah. Yeah. Having his Kyle. We mentioned going to Boston. You found things. You thought of a history first, huh? I thought if I ever go to Boston, I want to go to the Borland Finch Tavern. There, <laughs> my I, I grew up with my dad watching Cheers, and that's where that was filmed at. So I'd say, yeah, I want to go there and see that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, had Jason George's on my show today, and he talked about going to the Far East in Asia. I, I don't remember what country it was, but he'd had a girl coming over for a Bible study said forever at one point she came back and said I can't keep going on because the my family's getting after me because what I'm doing is bringing shame to them mm-hmm. and he thought I need to do some research I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about honor and shame I mean we told that to me I was interviewing Tom and I couldn't help but laugh a little bit at that point I thought, yeah I think you discover very quickly it does and've I've said several times that I' will it our culture today we talk all about guilt and innocence so mm. much and we mean it in an emotional context and the bible talks about these things but it means it more in a legal context instead of a feeling context but it constantly talks about honor and shame guess which one we talk about the most in our churches today
0: mostly shame
1: <laughs> yeah mostly the guilt and innocence instead guilt 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 we talk about shame sometimes you never Uh, yes
0: that parallel yeah yeah
1: Yeah. well and then we we contrast this with the woman at the wear here and you know she was living in a shameful position because the text says she came out at noon when it would be the hardest part of the day and when none of the other women were around and the astounding thing is at the end she becomes the most vocal woman and it's amazing because she's going out and saying This guy told me everything I ever did when earlier she was ashamed of everything she ever did.
0: Yeah. Yep. It's There's so much in that passage that happens. And it's just incredible and fascinating to me to think about also uh, the parallel between the whole city was killed for Dinah's shame, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The whole city was saved because... The Samaritan woman allowed her shame to be taken away. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible parallel across these thousands of years. And I think what I struggled with when I first studied this was, well, this is really depressing for Dinah. You know, I don't, we don't know what happened with Dinah. And so her story just sits there and it feels like it's not reconciled, but in reality, Dinah's hope was the coming Messiah. Dinah's hope was God's faithfulness to her. And her righteousness would have been by faith, just like Abraham, in trusting God to redeem that situation, even though she would never see the Messiah in person. And so she had that faith. Possibly, you know, we don't know, but she would have been able to have that faith for the future coming Messiah to redeem and make all things right, just as the Samaritan woman put faith in him when she met him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's uh, start then getting into some of the meat and bones, what you're talking about in this book here. The kind of issues tonight. One of the first ones is, and this one, first one's ironically the thing that I think led me to start doing theology and apologetics in Bible college and found my niche and fell in love with it immediately. Legalism, of all Mm. things. Because when I was at that state, I was in a very deep depression, very concerned about my own personal salvation over matters that were very legalistic. And somehow along the way, I found out about apologetics and started doing that. And... Didn't focus any more on the legalistic issues and now those legalistic issues that were so concerning to me back then, they don't even register anymore. I look back and I'm like back my what the heck was I thinking back mm-hmm. then, but legalism is still very real today. I mean, I don't think it really is worth something about what's going on in the biblical times like we think about even in Galatians, but today it sure is,
0: yeah, it really is a It's a a theme that we struggle with in the church. And honestly, it's the driving factor behind the deconstruction movement, Mm -hmm. behind, I would say, even many atheists Mm -hmm. who come out of the church. And you've talked to atheists, so you you would know. Um, It's never – they're never reacting against a loving, well-reasoned Christianity. Mm -hmm. They're reacting against a twisted, legalistic form of it. Mm -hmm. And as you know, legalism comes in so many different forms. Mm -hmm. I've seen it in the form of you've got to wear these clothes and you can't listen to this music and you can't do this and you can't do that. I've seen it in the form in the in the Pentecostal world. You must speak in tongues to be saved Mm -hmm. or you're not saved and you have to um, experience the Holy Spirit this way or you're not a Christian and adding on to what the Lord said and taking away the freedom of following Christ. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think many atheists today and many non-Christians on not just and say many Christians meet to have the same attitude that, you know, God uh, pretty much just uh, wants you to be bored and especially cure your sex life whatsoever because, you know, you can't have any of that going on. And I just mean mm-hmm. like have you never read the Song of Songs before? Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be Oh, attitude. I, I think, honestly, sexual ethics is one of the number one reasons a lot of people refuse to come to Jesus. And I meet so many Christians who take that whole thing super lightly. Like uh, Christians who now are they sleeping together before they get married, they're living together before they get married.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it really, um, a lot of the changes that people make to theology are to achieve a certain lifestyle end. Like, you know, I want this, this lifestyle. God would never tell me that it's wrong if he would really loved me. Um, I don't feel like God is love if he has boundaries like that. And so therefore I change God and, they'll never frame it that way you know it's always oh i found new information about mm-hmm. who god is or the bible didn't actually mean this it meant this and it was translated like this and you know so many arguments to defend it that are really to achieve the the lifestyle that somebody wants
1: yeah uh don johnson he was on my show once in a book how to talk to a skeptic You talk about Mm -hmm. someone, I think, in youth ministry, you had this boy kept coming to him, part of the youth group, kept asking all these odd questions about the Bible, that were like apologetics questions, wanting to know, how can you trust the Bible, how can you trust the Bible when it says this, 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 all this, and he was getting tired of it, and at one point, after a question, he just turned to this guy and said, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? And the guy just turns pale white immediately. That was the very issue going on Mm, yeah now not everyone's dealing with those kinds of things but there is a sort of legalism out there and one of the main areas I think this pops up for women is how they dress because Mm -hmm. women are told you have to dress such and such a way if you're going to be a fitting Christian woman because you know all those men out there are just lust-filled hormone machines who are just waiting to tackle you at any time. And if you dress wrongly, you are going to be a, a stumbling block to them entirely. I've had Sheila Ray Greg War on before talking about that kind of male before. I mean, t- there is some truth, of course, that a woman should take in mind how she looks when she goes out in public. And especially a Christian woman to not be too showy. But gosh, Mm -hmm. sometimes we make it too legalistic. Sometimes you can use a ruler to measure a skirt length or something like that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I've actually heard people do this with, you know, going down into Genesis and looking at the tunics that God gave to Adam and Eve and saying exactly what they would have looked like so that we can determine the length that dresses have to be and things like that. And the reality is that when the Bible talks about modesty – what it's talking about usually is social modesty, Mm -hmm. not being an economic stumbling block, Mm -hmm. you know, shaming the poor by dressing excessively with wealth and coming in and making them feel bad which is why Peter says you know not don't bedeck yourself with gold and pearls and expensive clothes not because those things are inherently bad but because women were doing it to show off at these gatherings and making those who had less feel like they didn't belong and it was all about, you know, the wealthy, you know, and it's all about social status. We see this problem in the church today. That is immodesty, mm. just as much as showing up, you know, in a skin tight <laughs> dress with p- body parts hanging out would be.
1: Yeah. When Paul says this in one of the letters to Timothy about dressing modesty, he's saying women don't dress like you're rich when you're not trying to win honor. I mean, he's not saying... Don't ever dress up nice and look good at all. Right. I mean, heck when Ruth is going to see Boaz to offer to ask if he'll marry her, where's Naomi Terror? Babe, put on mm-hmm. your best clothes. Look the best you can. I mean when when I picked up my wife for our first date, she told me she was so excited she got up at like three in the morning, was starting already, putting on her makeup and things like that and uh-huh. trying to find the best outfit. That's not anything wrong. I mean, if you're going on a date, I mean, you should want to dress your best for that person. But at the same time, there is this this danger here we've got that women are told that all they do is fear lust for men.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm interested in what you would have to say about that, Nick, because my thought as a woman has always been that argument treats men, mm-hmm. it demeans men. Yeah. It treats them like they're animals and have no control over themselves. And it actually makes them seem, you know, it's it's talking down to them, treating them like they're stupid mm-hmm. and saying like, oh, you women, you need to behave this way because, you know, the average Christian man can't control himself.
1: Before I get we I would like to let everyone know, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, we got Felicia Masonheim on, talking about her book, Stop Calling Me Beautiful. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Justin Bass on, and he's going to be talking about his book, The Bedrock of Christianity. How can we know Christianity is true, especially facts concerning the historical Jesus? What were even skeptical scholars say about historical Jesus? You know, I tell people that, very really, in the long run, it doesn't matter how a woman dresses because if she's beautiful, a man's going to notice her anyway. And I've told my my wife's told me before. He said, "You can find beauty in every woman." I say, "Oh, I sure can. Every single woman to me is absolutely beautiful." I uh, I just think, I mean, but especially whenever I see my wife, I think, "God, you knew what you were doing when you made women, and you did good. That is wonderful." <laughs> but at the same time, it it. It can be a minefield for us sometimes. I've written before about... My wife and I used to attend a church that met at the mall.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, she was doing some stuff for some people there afterwards. So I went through the mall. Because the mall was at the movie theater that we, the church was at was in the mall. And so I went and, I went. and here comes this attractive-looking woman heading the heading my way. Not to me, but going by me. thought, I'll look away. That's what every guy does. And I did, to which Victoria's Secret was right there. I thought, oh, you can't get away from this. And mm-hmm. and to me, I, I tell women, I say, women, let me tell you something about what your man's going through in his world sometimes. If you've got a good man, he is trying super, super hard to honor you with his eyes and his mind. Mm-hmm. And I say, picture it. If you're on a diet trying to lose those last 10 pounds, and you have to go down that aisle of a grocery store, whatever hour it is, every woman knows what her weakness is in that area. And I say, that is what your man goes through regularly. And what, he, what would fear him most if, if he came home and he got to give you all that love he's been wanting to give all day long. But the hmm. reality is, I mean, I'm a man who never watched porn growing yeah. up, so I, I, I know about this kind of thing, and I look at women, and I'm just amazed by them. I know some women were there, and normally, two minutes later or so, if that long, I've already completely forgotten about what I saw. By the time, I appreciate seeing all that beauty there, but I can control Myself, I have to control myself. And if I don't control myself, it is not for woman's fault. And even if it's my wife, it is not her fault. It is my fault entirely.
0: And that's uh, such a, a good thing to hear from a man's perspective, because the narrative towards women for so long has been, you're the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. You're the one that needs to control him because he's just inevitably going to be mm-hmm. weak in this area, which theologically that undermines the role of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. in empowering mm-hmm. us to self-control. But when I'm talking to women on the you know the flip side of this, so just because it's a man's responsibility doesn't mean you can abuse him as your brother you know mm-hmm. So if you know you're going to an, a, an environment where there's mixed company, you're single, there's a bunch of guys there married, unmarried, how can you honor your brother with mm-hmm. how you are dressing? How are you mm-hmm. honoring yourself? as a woman, mm-hmm. what message are you sending about yourself is you're dressing for the Lord. You're not dressing for men or, you know, to prevent lust, to gain attention, you're dressing for the Lord and mm-hmm. for your relationship with him. So in certain contexts, and this is what I, I think a lot of people who struggle with legalism and modesty don't understand that modesty really does end up being contextual. Mm-hmm. Certain things are okay in certain times and areas that aren't okay elsewhere. Certain things you wear at home, you don't wear to the grocery store. You know, Mm -hmm. you wear things you wear with your husband, you don't wear, you know, in the car Mm. (laughs) when you're driving to run errands. So it really is a contextual thing. People don't like that because they want those black and white lines. But I think the the more you walk with the Lord, the more you see that you don't need legalism to choose well how to be modest because god works that humility in your heart and that love for your brother and that love for your sister and you make your choices accordingly
1: yeah let's uh move on because we can't talk about everything in here but i want to cover more things here how about anxiety learning to trust cuz i'm going to say it, anxiety is something we all deal with not just women i deal with it too so how do mm-hmm. we deal with anxiety
0: so this chapter was actually the hardest one for me to write and stop calling me beautiful because it it's a touchy subject today mm-hmm. and obviously there are mental health components with anxiety but like anything I think there's always a spiritual component too. I have an autoimmune disease, it's Mm -hmm. very physical, but I deal with it spiritually too because I struggle with depression over it or anxiety over it at times. And I have to deal with that both spiritually and physically. So when we're looking at anxiety, we have to remember that it's not purely physical, nor is it purely spiritual. Mm -hmm. It's a both and thing. And a lot of this comes back to what we believe about God. So let's set the physical part aside for this conversation. We just won't address that at this point because there's other people who do a better job with that. But Mm -hmm. talking purely about the spiritual aspect, if anxiety is a fear of the future, fear of what could happen, what will happen to us, and God is sovereign, so he knows the future, If we are walking in step with God and choosing to learn to trust Him, then we will see a decrease in our anxiety as we walk with Him. Doesn't mean it will go away, it just means that we will be continually making the choice to entrust our future to God, to remember that He is there with us, to know Him better. Because if you think about a marriage, in my relationship with my husband, Josh, i couldn't trust him if i didn't know him Mm -hmm. and we have so many christian women who don't know god so it's no wonder they can't trust him they don't Mm -hmm. know what he's like they don't know his character so why would you trust him we have to know him to trust him Mm
1: -hmm. yeah but sometimes i think we have that fear in us that you know it's not that for me when i go through extreme suffering and hard times my fear is just like what C.S. Lewis said. But fear is not God doesn't exist. The fear is, oh, God is real, and this is what he's really like.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, that we can say, oh, yeah, God knows the future. God's in charge of it. I'm just, it, it's kind of like, you know, going to the dentist or a doctor for an operation that could be painful. Yeah, oh, yeah I know that they're in charge. I know they can handle it. I'm just scared it's going to hurt a lot.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so what do you say to that?
0: I totally agree with you that mm-hmm. truly the more we know him, the more we understand that he is not only purely good, but he does good and he mm-hmm. has our best interest in mind, mm-hmm. the easier it is to trust him. Mm-hmm. It, it is... Is if we use the doctor analogy again, like if I don't trust my doctor, I'm not going to let him touch me. You know, I'm not going to let him do surgery on me. But if I know that this is the best person to handle this situation, I'm going to trust him to take me even into a very painful situation that's for my benefit. Mm. And with the Lord, we can know he has our best interest in mind always. But he sees further than we do. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And trusting him often is an hour-by-hour decision.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that. In fact, that's why I point to Romans 8:28 as a better verse to use instead of Jeremiah 29:11. I, I had a friend going through a crisis recently, and he called me, and he was trying to figure out how to work through it. And I pointed to that verse and said because he's in the projects mind the guy and i said you need to keep this in mind if you love the lord this is going to work for your good i'm a gamer so in gaming terminology i say this is the ultimate cheat code for life (laughs) this will work for good and he kept saying well this is going to happen this happen. and said okay let's get back to one proposition it was going to be our base proposition we don't know the future it's okay we don't know the future he he say, but but if that happens, and this, and this, and I said, what's our proposition? We don't know the future. And that kept coming back over and over. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of Mark Twain saying that I have feared many things in my life. Some of them actually happened.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Our worst nightmare is usually worse than reality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in my life, I've had things happen that really were my worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. My husband losing his job suddenly when the day after we bought our house, when I was seven months pregnant, that is just a nightmare to mm-hmm. me. And yet, God showed Himself so faithful for that season. And so I can look back on that and I can say. God was faithful then. He was faithful in all these other circumstances. And who he was to us then is basically like an, my, an Ebenezer stone, a reminder of who he is today. And the character that I've seen in him in the word and in my life is my basis for trust.
1: Mm. Yeah, my, my wife has BPD, and I know this month, like five years ago from last week she'd actually had a, a massive suicide attempt. So that really oh, leaves oh. us thinking about things this month. And she still got lost. I was with BPD, but when I look back on it this time, I keep thinking, gosh, that was such a horrible, horrible time in my life. And she really wants to get back to the place someday where she's, she was when she got where she was saying, I'm so thankful I survived. And she had so much joy then. But, yeah, I've i've had the worst happen to me i mean i would rather it happened to me than happen to her
0: right yeah mm-hmm.
1: so what do you recommend we do about anxiety just saying you know trust god he knows the future that still sometimes doesn't cut it for us
0: right and it is yeah it's kind of annoying when people treat treat anxiety that way and like don't just trust god more just pray more well it's not that simple you know there are physical things we can do to help with anxiety um in our home we change diet um gluten is known to contribute to anxiety and um cause some issues with people who have adhd and things like that and so you know there's things you can do physically but then spiritually i think what really needs to happen is not just trust god you know just tell somebody to trust god rather let's study who god is and then the trust will come naturally you know it's like telling somebody oh trust trust your boyfriend you know, or trust this guy to date him when mm-hmm. they don't know him yet, instead of saying, just get to know him. And as they get to know him, then um, through that, they may fall in love and trust him and end up in a relationship with him, you know. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's a similar thing where the more we know about him through the word, through quality resources, we begin to find that trust comes naturally.
1: Yeah. My, my wife has said since due to her emotional problems, she's had been in counseling so much of her life, m- most of her life at this point, say. And she's said for a sometimes Christian counselors can be some of the worst ones out there. It's not true about our current one. He's awesome. But she says so many Christian counselors that go to, they just give, tend to give the same pablum, Read mm-hmm. the Bible and pray. You know, those yep. are good things to do, but gosh, a, tr- a good counselor needs to be able to say so much more than just that.
0: Yes, I totally agree. Our counselor is wonderful, too. She's a Christian, um, but also, you know, a licensed counselor who, who meets with non-Christians as well. And it is, it's more than just the pat answer. Mm-hmm. And just telling somebody to trust when they're struggling with trust makes zero sense. It. Mm-hmm.
1: Hey. Speaking about struggling with trust, then, let's go to another issue in the book that you talk about. Women, this is so especially prevalent today, a broken sexuality, and this is normally because of women, like has happened with my wife, who have gone through sexual abuse, not from our family, by the way, just to make clear of everyone, but gone through it, and this is an area so many women struggle in, and that can be especially difficult for the men, who aren't struggling in that area, mm-hmm. you know, because it just leads to such a, a tension. Why is this such an issue for women?
0: I think it's what it goes back to what you said earlier, Nick, about honor and shame. And something about sexuality taps into that honor and shame concept, that when sexuality is truly honored the way God wants it to be honored. We feel fulfilled, um, whether you're being honored as someone who's not yet having sex and Mm -hmm. people are honoring that choice, honoring you as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, or whether the, you know, you're in marriage and your sexuality is being honored appropriately there, you know, your needs are being considered. It's a loving, um, act and union, But when sexuality is twisted, when people abuse it, when they um, take it, when they manipulate it, then we see this shame. And that shame opens the door to sexual addictions and further promiscuity. Mm -hmm. Um, I work with a lot of young women who have come out of sexual addiction or currently struggling. Mm -hmm. Many of them were sexually abused. And so obviously the, the, the beginning portion for their for their life and their sexuality it wasn't their choice to be roped into that someone's sexual sin but then after that the shame drove them to their own decisions of sexual sin because they felt like you said earlier damaged goods mm-hmm. why try it doesn't matter it's all gone it doesn't mm-hmm. you know there's no point anymore and something about that shame and honor and sexuality um it's just powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because the enemy knows how powerful sex is. Oh, yes. He knows what it does to women, especially, and their hearts and their spirits. I think it affects men just as much. Oh, I yes. just think they deal with it differently. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking as a man, I can definitely assure you it, it deals with things so much better. I used to see a pastoral counselor when I lived in Knoxville. And I didn't understand what he said at the time, he said, you know, some of these issues that you're struggling with right now, I really don't think they're going to change until you get married and have sex.
0: <laughs> I,
1: I really don't see how that's going to be such a big issue there. But then a few months after we got married, my wife and I went to an apologetics conference in Charlotte, and we heard a talk that was being given on gender differences or ways men and women relate and at that point, some things started to click. And mm. I went up to speak to the lady afterwards, and I know her and her husband still today. And Ari, my wife, was there with me. And I said, you know, I, I, I started having things click afterwards. Because before I got married to Ari, I was often very insecure in my apologetics. Mm. And I couldn't take criticism in it very well. Because you know, for me I think when I found out out fat that. that was where I was getting my identity entirely and if I was questioning my area, then that that left me question about my worth and things of that sort. But now that I'm married to Allie, I get validation from her on a regular basis. So I'm able to flow a lot smoother. My ability in this field is far far better. Now, that does seem to that position of things aren't well between us. I right. can still struggle at that time, but yes, I, I think looking back, that counselor was right, that that was such a huge validation to me as a man.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that there is, a, there is something about the covenant intimacy in marriage that that we we downplay. We either make it purely physical, right, mm-hmm. or people make it super spiritual and like you're not supposed to get any physical out of it at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, of course, this isn't to say that singles can't experience this confidence and this you know spiritual fulfillment too, because we know Paul was single and um, was very um, passionate about that. But that for those who are married, there is this support. And encouragement um, sexually that contributes to your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, and it's very, very powerful. But of course, so of course, the enemy is going to use that to his advantage and and use our sexual choices to shame us and trap us and keep us, you know, in bondage. Mm. And and that was my own story. I have a history of sexual addiction um, and erotica, which is like porn in writing mostly marketed to women and walking through that with the Lord has truly taught me that either you know you're controlled by sexual shame or shame in general or you're controlled by the Holy Spirit and God's truth you can't be controlled by both at the same time Mm -hmm. and so to the degree you're surrendered to God's truth you're free from sexual sin Mm -hmm
1: before we keep giving out, I'd like to remind you, when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. We really need and appreciate your support. If you want to give that, please go to deeperwatersapodge.x.com. That's my site. And click on the link of the site help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian ministry. Now, you'll get taken from there to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you are still at the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona you uh, make your donation and then you get in touch with them or me or my wife I said hey I made a donation I want to go to Nick Peters I want to go to Deeper Waters we will give that donation it will be tax deductible you can also buy ebooks that I have written a creed for the ages the Apostles Creed and today's Christian and hopefully out by now one uh, Dawkins in the Dark my look at Richard Dawkins' book Outgrowing God um, ones I've co-written Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, The Mention Bars Project, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions, and of course, Defining Inerrancy and Contextualizing Inerrancy. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review. It means so much to me. Now, Felicia, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to people or donate to?
0: Um, yes. If they would love to donate, um, we my husband and I support a organization here in northern Michigan called Mana Food Project that provides food to mm-hmm. the underprivileged and those in rural poverty. Um and so that is our donation of choice. Um and they serve alongside a lot of churches of different denominations as well, in order to provide food to people and families in Michigan who um, are experiencing food insecurity, especially now that coronavirus has quarantined mm. many of them.
1: Okay, so let's get back here to the whole thing about shame and learning your identity, because you know no woman really deserves to be used this way, and you know when I. When I encounter women struggling with, with, with enjoying physical intimacy, I tell you, you know what. You're not just depriving your husband if you're doing this kind of thing. You're depriving yourself. Mm-hmm. You are made to enjoy physical intimacy. You are made to enjoy your husband's body and his love. As as I said when Sheila Ray Gregoire was on here, I mean, just to be blunt here god gave women a clitoris the only purpose is so they could enjoy sex as the only thing purpose that thing serves for them you are meant to enjoy intimacy to enjoy being loved
0: yeah and and this is a concept in scripture that we see both in genesis and how adam and Eve were designed for one another but then consistently in the new testament where it says that Husbands and wives should not deny one another Mm -hmm. unless they are agreed. It's not, don't, you know, don't deny your husband only. He could have written that, but he didn't. He said, don't deny one another.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you recommend women do who are struggling with sexual shame?
0: Well, I always recommend first, if possible, To try to determine where the source is coming from. Is it how your parents talked about sex? Is it an abusive instance in your past, a person who hurt you and used you? Is it an addiction that you have and you know is wrong? but you aren't sure how to break that hold once you've determined kind of what the cause is what the root of it is you can then begin to figure out how to deal with it now normally what people do is they jump straight to the boundaries and trying to set up fences and you know get covenant eyes and make mm-hmm. sure that they don't sin but until your heart changes towards your sexuality towards the Lord, towards yourself, you're not going to have success in this area. And so what has to happen is you have to get to know the Lord, like we talked about earlier, get to know who he is, his love for you, the his love for your sexuality that he designed. And in embracing those truths, It will begin to break down some of those walls and those lies that you have been believing because there's so many lies about sexuality. Now, I would also add seeing a biblical counselor, someone, and you might have to try a few because, you know, like we talked about with anxiety, sometimes they just aren't ideal for the situation. Mm Mm-hmm but having someone, a mentor or um, someone you can talk to who is a strong believer and who will give you the truth, but who will walk with you as you are navigating. This is so, so helpful. When I was walking out of addiction, I had to talk to, oh my gosh, I tried probably five or six people. I asked to hold me accountable before I found someone who really would. And so it's hard to be vulnerable. It does need to be in person though, because opening up in person in that vulnerability is what truly breaks the hold of shame. Shame can't survive in the light. And so as you're dealing with, you know, sexual a history and that shame, finding the right safe person to talk to about it, Um, I I always say if you're in a relationship that your accountability partner can't be your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it needs to be somebody outside the situation. Um, not somebody who is actively contributing to the temptation or the struggle. And so it's a lot, it's, it can be a struggle, but it truly is so freeing to start with the word, what you know about God, um, getting that counsel and mentorship and walking forward into freedom with the Lord. Hi, this is Justin Briley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work.
1: You know, this isn't to say covenant eyes and such isn't a good thing to do. You should do it, but you definitely need more.
0: Right, foundation.
1: Now, something I wanted to ask about this also is you know, we know that you were talking about writing erotica and things like that. We know that porn gives men unrealistic ideas about women many times. And yes, it can give women unrealistic ideas about men, but sometimes I honestly think they're not erotica, but a lot of romance novels. Can give women very unrealistic ideas about men and how they're supposed to be. Absolutely. I say, look, ladies, I hate to tell you, but when Cinderella married Prince Charming, she woke up in the morning and he had bad breath. <laughs> or he burped. He passed gas. He did everything. It was not. It, it was not everything perfect. He, he Didn't he? Did not look like he stepped out of GQ magazine regularly. <laughs>
0: It's true. No, Mm. romance novels, Christian and not, have really shaped, I think, a lot of women's perspectives Mm. on not only men, but relationships in general, their expectations of what they, quote unquote, deserve. And so we have these polar ends in relationships. We have um, women who settle for, you know, whatever guy will give them attention because they feel like they don't deserve better. And then women with these severely high expectations, because they've read these novels and watch these movies, where they have these perfect guys, or they're looking for this movie type of relationship, and it just doesn't exist, or it starts out that way. And, and then the magic goes away, and there's no point in staying. So novels often are written by women so you have this idealized version written by a woman not by a man by mm. a woman so if a, if a man was writing it i think there'd possibly be more accuracy in what a man would be like mm. but because a woman is writing it you have a woman's perspective on what a man should be like even in christian romance novels this is a problem mm. and a lot of women justify romance plot lines you know, saying it doesn't affect them. It's not changing how they think. But when you consume the same thing over and over and over again, it will change how you think. Mm -hmm. It will change your expectations. It will change how you interact. And I've seen many single women really struggle with dating because the guy doesn't meet all these standards. And the question is, you know, are you living in the real world? Are you living, you know, among real people or are you living among this idealized version in your mind? And nobody's measuring up because you took the ideal from fiction instead of from reality.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think men would be more accurate If anything. We'd probably over-exaggerate ourselves. We would be su- <laughs> the supreme <laughs> lovers, for instance. So, yeah, I, I don't think we would be entirely accurate. But, you know, we again, we could spend our time here doing all this more and more. We could do a whole show on this easily, but we still have other things to come them one of the ones also here that i think definitely needs to be talked about is overcoming shame for a woman because so many times a woman struggles so badly with shame and i hate to say it, but a lot of times it can be based on how they look too because they mm-hmm. no woman thinks she's beautiful enough it seems
0: mm-hmm Yes. Um, I think a lot of that comes from comparison and our world's emphasis on the outward. We can really struggle with how we look, mm-hmm. um, especially when we look at ourselves and then we look out at the world and we think, gosh, you know, I I can't afford to, you know, be as gorgeous as these women and do all the things that they do to, to keep themselves up. And in those moments, it again, it just comes back to where's my identity? Is it in Christ? Is it in... Um, what he's done in the whole gospel and the story of his redemption, or is it in my outward appearance? And that's not to say that taking care of yourself is bad or yeah. wrong. It's not, it's, it's wonderful. I love it myself, but that can't be my identity because over time our bodies change. They, they age and eventually we, our bodies will remain and our spirits will leave our bodies. And so it's, it's this, this, question of you know stewarding the body while not idolizing the body mm.
1: yeah something interesting about this is that one of my wife's girlfriends came over some this past week and just talking with us because my wife struggles with this kind of thing and what we told her it and uh, i was able to back this and tell us all right look how you look really is secondary what matters most is confidence more than mm. anything else. Confidence for a woman is super attractive. And uh, it just boggles my mind when women worry so much about the things that we look and think they don't really matter. And the things that we think matter most, so many women say that doesn't really matter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I think the church has tended to. It's tended to, again, go to extremes in reaction to culture Mm. and say, you know, uh, inner beauty is what matters most. And women who care about outward beauty are deemed shallow or as if their outward beauty doesn't matter. Mm. And so they feel shame about the fact that they care about that. Or you feel shame because you care about your outward appearance in general um, or that you are beautiful outside and then not taking care of your spirit and your soul. There's just shame can come from so many different directions. And. I just always come back to shame can't be from Christ because it always separates you Mm -hmm. from God. It always pushes you away. Mm -hmm. So if it's separating you from God, it's pushing you away from seeking him. Then that is the thing that you reject. Mm -hmm. That's the thing you move away from. You come close to the Lord and you say, Lord, I feel this way, but I know it's not from you and I need you to save me from it. And that's where it, yes, we're saved once, right? But we're also continually saved from things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, by the grace of god
1: yeah i i probably want to put in maybe some stipulations here i, mean, I think shame could be good if it drove you to repentance mm. for something you've done wrong but shame just for the sake of shame no and it, it's understandable to have shame for something you've done but you shouldn't have shame for who you are
0: Right. Yes. I guess I think of that as conviction, Okay. Um, but it can conviction and shame can feel very similar. One driving you away, one drawing you towards, mm-hmm. um, or in that moment you have kind of a crisis of decision. Like you can choose to let it be conviction and drive you to God or let it be shame and push you away. Um, they very, are very similar sensations, I think. Um, and, but, but in either case, as a Christian, you have that, decision that opportunity choose God or choose you know to run away from God but he's the solution and he's the only good we have so it makes sense to go to him.
1: I remember when my, my wife was whether she wanted to join the Orthodox church or if she'd check out Catholicism instead or anything like that just try and find her way and I mean I, I'm still very much a strong Protestant and I suspect I'll be staying that way all my life and as I learned something new about it, but I still remember she met a Catholic priest told her that she visited, and I was there with her. And it struck me as one of the most true statements out there, where she said, "Look, I'm just looking for something deeper than what I have." And he said, "And I don't see any way I could disagree with." Him, he said, "What you refine, you refine by going deeper into Jesus Christ."
0: Oh, that's a powerful statement. Yep. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I love that.
1: I, mean, I really, I really I, I don't really care which route you go, as long as it's something Christian still. I mean, like if you are talking about joining the Mormon Church, okay, we're gonna have to have a little talk about that one. Right, but yeah, if Catholicism gets you closer to Jesus, if Orthodoxy gets you closer to Jesus, I am all for it because that's all that matters to me is you getting closer to Christ
0: yeah yeah and it's amazing to see how across the traditions of the church we've there's different ways of doing that while still uniting around that orthodox theology mm-hmm. that you know the sound teaching of the of the historical church
1: it, it seems that for a lot of women it could be one of the problems is they a lot of women i think really have a hard time accepting being loved and that leads to a lot of the shame
0: Hmm. yes for sure I think that's definitely a struggle for a lot of us. And it was a struggle for me that really shifted when I allowed myself to accept the love of God. Mm -hmm. When God became truly real to me and I was seeking him and realizing God really does love me, Mm -hmm. uh, then it was easier to accept the love of people. Interestingly, I never would have thought that, but it is how it worked out for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, I've told or this kind of thing before and I said to a friend she was talking to last night she was talking to a thing that she'd been wronged by someone whether she had or not I don't know I didn't know the situation I couldn't speak on it I said look however us treat you that can be important but what is more important is not how others treat you it is how you treat others you have no control over what they do to you you have great control over what you do to them
0: that's a really great point mm-hmm. it's su- super true too mm-hmm. you know others can treat you poorly and that's not a reflection on your character
1: yeah uh, I tell her, my wife I was so many times I say look Ari if someone doesn't love you that tells you very little about them about you and it tells you a whole lot about them and if you in turn do not love someone that tells very little about them. It tells a whole lot about you.
0: And That's another good statement. You're just full of great, great thoughts, Nick.
1: <laughs> now, let's talk some also about uh, morning, Because, you know, we we kind of have this uh, idea that, you know, we're, we're supposed to be positive, happy people. Many times you try out how good the love of God is. And yes, that's true. But let's face it, sometimes things happen... And we mourn over them. Last year, my wife's first real pet, a dog, that she'd had. um, She got them when they were. um, I don't remember how old. Teenage, or maybe just barely preteen, I don't remember exactly. But last year was the first time they uh, had to put the dog down. And if you've had experience with pets, you know that is a super super hard time and heck, i didn't even grow up with a dog i was there when it happened and i was trying to control myself from crying at the time it mm-hmm. is a very hard time and of course there are so many harder situations losing a human loved one a, a close relative a friend things like that it it's ridiculous to think we should be happy at those times isn't it
0: it is and the answer isn't you know you know, we, we, once again, we give those pat answers like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, they're in a better place, you know, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And what we really need is to step back and, and look at God's heart in grief because it grie- it grieves God himself to see the effects of sin in the world, death, decay, those things grieve God. Even Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus right before he was about to raise him from the dead. So if Jesus wept, Jesus grieved in a a situation in which he was going to reverse death. How much more can we grieve with God and allow ourselves to feel the pain that we are feeling?
1: This is something that's very biblical. I mean, we're told in the scripture, mourn with those who mourn. And then, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it it does put an important message on our grief. It says, We mourn, but not like those who have no hope our morning is still supposed to be different isn't it
0: it is it's a hopeful morning mm. because there is there is a reconciliation so the last year we did a study through revelation with our college student group and they chose revelation I've never done a chapter by chapter study on it and that's what they wanted us to do and so I'm so glad that we did it because mm. it really gives a great picture of god reconciling all things Mm -hmm. so all the grief we've ever experienced is brought to justice at the end of days we even see some reconciliation in this life god's redemption of grief um but ultimately at the end of days there will be this reconciliation this judgment where it's all called to account and that's a comfort that no pain we go through is unaccounted for god knows and he sees it and he walks with us through it
1: you know i'm really glad that you uh, use the term revelation there because it, it's one of my personal pet peeves when people put an s at the end of revelation i'm saying yo, know, that, that that's grounds for stoning
0: right there <laughs> adding a letter
1: yeah, like I said, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ not for revelations there's only one of them but I did an interesting study on my blog once years ago on the book of revelation I love debating eschatology end times it's one of my mm-hmm. favorite topics to cover but I said I'm going to go through the book and see not what it says about end times but just see what it says about Jesus Christ, mm. and that is a very interesting study to do. And if you go to Revelation and do the study, and the whole purpose is to try and make sense out of end times, you're missing the most important thing in the book.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's that's a really great way to go through any book. I think um, I, you know, I think that's a great point that. You can go to it looking to make a systematic theology or arrive at a conclusion. Like I need to end up with a premillennial theology if I read mm-hmm. Revelation. Or you can go in looking at you know who is Jesus in this in this book, and gain some really powerful understanding of God's character by doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. So we've we've got a few minutes to go here. I mean, we've talked a lot about things like this for women, and your book is of course excellent for the to help with this. If a woman's wanting to get started studying theology, projects, things of that sort, seriously, what would you recommend she do?
0: I would recommend first learning just the basics of Bible study. So how to break a passage down, how to study the different words, the historical context. And I have a lot of resources on my website about that. If they have questions, including a free course that walks you through how to do that. Um, And there's some great books out there too, like Women of the Word by Jen Wilkin. That's a great start, a great foundation. From that point, I also recommend if they're not in a church that is teaching from the word to find one and get involved because that will be so supportive Mm -hmm. during that season of growing and going deeper and then finally just utilizing some basic resources to understand theology one that i really like is the know what you believe and know why you believe series um yes Mm -hmm. paul little I think they're super, you know, simple and a good start that kind of give you that basis. Another one that I love is How We Got the Bible by Jones. Mm-hmm. Really simple, lots of pictures and kind of just walks you through in a really simple way where the Bible came from and why we can trust it. And I think having those foundational elements really kinda of opens the door to more questions and then they can dive into an area that they maybe are passionate about. Like I know you said you're very passionate about the resurrection. They can <laughs> You know, begin to read Habermas's work or something mm-hmm. like that. Whereas, you know, I'm very passionate about the canon and how the Bible was formed. And so that's kind of an era I've really studied.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but even if a, if a woman doesn't know a campaign, I mean, what are some criteria she can be looking for when deciding if she's going to listen to, read a book or say, listen to a podcast such as this one? or anything like that? I mean, how does a woman go about evaluating what she's going to choose to use?
0: Well, what I usually use as a measure um, is knowing first, what are the fundamentals of Christianity that that need to be supported? Mm -hmm. And looking back at church history, so let's look at the Apostles' Creed. Let's look at the Nicene Creed. What were they affirming? Well, they're affirming the Trinity and the equal Um, and unified natures of God. You know, we're not looking at a a modalist structure. Mm. We're not looking at um, God creating the Son and the Spirit. And we're looking at a real Trinity. And we're looking at, you know, Jesus coming as a man, fully God, fully man. Things that are essential doctrines Mm. to the faith. Understanding that is so important because there's so much confusion today, you know, using words that— sound right but the theology that's being taught is off base mm. and so I think this comes with time I think it takes discernment and having some core teachers who are teaching that foundational Orthodox theology to get them started and then from there they can start to expand out and read in some other traditions or read people who vary a little bit um, and I I will give recommendations and I'm sure you do to have mm-hmm. a lot of recommendations, Nick, to, to give them oh, yes. scholars who are sticking to confessional Christianity, um, even though they may differ on a few issues.
1: Yeah, if I'm recommending new books to people, one of the first ones I recommend is Lee Strober, what he does, because yes. now he does, he give you good information. When you finish reading the Lee Strober book, you know plenty of other authors you can get with because he interviews them.
0: Mm-hmm. I love Lee Strobel. I love um, Ravi Zacharias is mm. good too, oh, yes. though he's a little harder to read than mm-hmm. Lee. Um, C.S. Lewis also would be great to get them started oh, yes. in apologetics and um, basic theology.
1: Yeah, my my wife's priest actually loves the writings of C.S. Lewis. I know many Catholics who love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is just so usable across the board. I mean, pretty much everyone
0: loves him. He is. He's so he's so clear and also kind of funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and um, just sums things up so beautifully. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, I think if you also have these, you'll be much more prepared for when, like I know, before too long. Hopefully, we're going to be having Jehovah's Witnesses come by because I saw an advertisement for a the Grocery Store. Hey, that sounds like fun. Have the Witnesses come by and. In my wife and I we know enough to not get caught in these but there are too many women who could be going to all these women's conferences and learning all these good things I'd say, how to be a good wife and a good mother which is excellent but then here come these more men say oh we believe in family too we are a very family focused church we would love to teach right. you how to be a good wife and good mother and I'm sure they've got some great advice that can be used but that comes with a whole other trap to it
0: Yes, it's it's why we need to know the word ourselves and not just secondhand.
1: What do you think churches can be doing here differently?
0: I think there truly needs to be a change, and and this is changing. I don't want to be discouraging, but I think there really needs to be a change overall in the church in how we're structuring women's Bible studies. Mm -hmm. I think there will be pushback from the women themselves who will say, this is boring, or I don't see how this applies, But we still need to do it. We need to take the existing studies deeper than they are. We need to teach them the terminology, teach them to study the Bible, not just read it, not just listen to it on audio. Show them how to break down a passage in 10 minutes, you know, not just read it and then try to, you know, live it out on their own strength. I think we need to take our women's ministries and go, okay, we're going to teach this like this is a theology Sunday school class. I think women want it more than they know. And once the classes and the women who are teaching begin to take their their congregation deeper, they will see that the women will rise up. They will rise to the level that's being taught. But for a long time, we've, we've talked down to women. We've taught down to them assuming they're not interested in theology Mm -hmm. because they're not going into ministry, they're not going to be pastors, etc. When in reality, I think women are interested in it. They just haven't had it offered to them. Mm -hmm.
1: So what do you think that husbands or even boyfriends can be doing to support their wives or girlfriends in this matter?
0: It's a good question. I think... Either way, like husband or boyfriend, taking an interest yourself is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, if your girlfriend or your wife is beginning to search and ask questions, support that in mm-hmm. her, support that interest. maybe. Find some resources you can read together or study a book of the Bible together. um, Support that interest. Now, obviously, you don't have to be the one-stop shop for her. You know, there's other resources that you can search out and she can search out. But I think just the fact that a husband or boyfriend is supportive and interested as well really inspires a lot of women to keep going. It's really lonely for them when their significant other doesn't take any interest in theology, and they do.
1: When you start talking about I remember we've had a Sean McDowell on our show before, a good friend mm-hmm. of ours here. And there was a story about, about how he went to his dad, Josh McDowell, once, very famously in Projects World, and how he said, Dad, I'm starting to doubt Christianity. And his dad, he means, That's great, son! And he was <laughs> thrilled with it. And Francis Shave, same kind of thing. His daughter came to him once, having a lot of doubts, and he didn't think so well. Go out there, study, read both sides, and make a decision. I will. And she remained a Christian. But you know, if you treat someone with doubts as if they've got a disease, you're really showing I think a lot of insecurity that you think Christianity is true.
0: Oh that's a great point. Yes. If we can't be okay with the questions and supportive of making an environment safe for questions, mm-hmm. this truly is contributing to the deconstruction movement because they are very open to questions. But the problem is they never have any solid answers. Mm-hmm. Whereas you should be able to ask a question and an answer, but you know not not have somebody shame you for asking the question yeah. or say, you know, why are you doubting? Like, what you know, are you sure you're saved and things like that? Um, making it a safe place for people to ask.
1: Yeah, know, we, we treat doubt too often like it's a disease. I, my, my mother nod to me about some people who she says, but they never doubt Christianity. And I, usually when I hear someone say they don't doubt Christianity, I think you are not taking it seriously. And since, I mean, there could be some exceptions, but for me, doubt is a very healthy part of faith.
0: It is, and and I think the doubt is when we go, okay, we're going to dig in, we're going to ask the questions, we're going to look at the text, we're going to ask the Lord, and that's actually how we we strengthen our faith, like you're saying. Mm
1: -hmm. And what do you think would be the end result once these women start studying all this theology?
0: I think that they will not only feel closer to the Lord, and like they trust Him more because they know him better but they'll also feel more confident in their faith and in their Christianity to be willing to have conversations with the people around them because when those tough questions come up about you know how does this change how I live you know why why are you making these decisions with your kids or with your sexuality they'll actually have a reason they'll be able to give a defense for what they believe not an argument just a defense just an explanation for for how they live and why they live the way they live and it will actually make them more confident more at peace um and more fulfilled in their identity in christ
1: yeah i know it's when we have people come over and we start having these kinds of discussions my wife doesn't have any concerns about things going off killed because she knows i can handle it if someone says something and i'm always trying to get a point of i i want you to be able to handle it too
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah and as women really dive into their faith, I think that's the natural outcome. And not that they'll know everything right away. Not that I know everything, even though I've been on this journey mm-hmm. for years. It's it's a continual walk with the Lord. And um, a lot of the confidence just comes from knowing Him mm-hmm. and knowing you're at peace with Him.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Felicia, we don't have time to get into any more questions. But it, it's been a great conversation. You know, if you didn't ever book out sometime, we'll have to do this again here. If anyone interested of in a book, it's Stop Calling Me Beautiful, Finding So Deep Strength in the Skin Deep World. That's the time of this recording on Kindle. It is 9.69. On Amazon, on paperback, it is 12.53. Um, Felicia, do you have a blog, an email, a website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more?
0: Yes. If they want to get in touch with me, they can follow my blog at FeliciaMasonheimer.com and then on social media, I am FeliciaMasonheimer.
1: Um, do you have a, a any a message you'd like to leave from a Deeper Waters audience? Here?
0: I would just say that I am just encouraged that I got to chat with you. It's always fun to talk the deeper um, things of the faith with somebody who appreciates it and studies it as well and that For those who are listening, I am just so excited for how the Lord will reveal himself to you as you go deeper with him.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Justin Bass on. talking about his book, The Bedrock of Christianity. For now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth. And I am signing off.